All right. Hello, everyone. Weston Nakamura from Blockworks Macro in Tokyo. It is Friday, March 31st, 2023 at Asian Markets Close, after Asian Markets Close. Welcome to the Market Death Podcast, bringing you global market commentary and analysis from the Asia-Pacific trading session so that you know what happened overnight. Today, however, I'm going to do something very different and give an overview of this frankly wild and historic month of March from a cross-asset perspective, but out of the Asia perspective. Okay. But before that, just very quick off the bat, I just want to address the China PMI figure that came out earlier today because I spent much of Wednesday's episode flagging this. So non-manufacturing PMI for China came out, uh, came in today at 58.2 for March. That's up from 56.3 previous, and that would mark the highest level since May of 2011. Uh, manufacturing PMI came in at 51.9 for March, down from February's 52.6, which, you know, as I mentioned on Wednesday, that 52.6 from last month, that was an 11-year high. But nonetheless, today's 51.9 reading was still above consensus, which was 51.5. Now, we are seeing strength in services and the construction sectors out of China. And so this is basically pointing to a continued China reopening theme that's intact, at least for the month. Now, it's not to say that China is like all clear by any means, obviously, but just the fact that they both came in strong and stronger than consensus expectations, more importantly, that suggests that this post-COVID recovery underway has legs for now. Uh, however, as Leland Miller from China Beige Book points out, um, and I'm paraphrasing here and I may be completely you know, misparaphrasing and getting what he's saying completely wrong. But, um, you know, the strength in like the China PMIs or, or I guess the, the kind of overall economic strength on balance, this actually might result in like a PBOC not having to pump as much liquidity into the system um, going forward to, to support it, right? Like especially relative to the massive amounts they've done in December and in, in January. So... It's something to kind of consider and keep in mind. I think that's a good point um, because it might be like a good news is bad news sort of situation that's now going to happen in, in China. But off the back of this, we did see sharp yuan strength and a lift in risk assets. We saw equity indices in the green for the last day of the month or the quarter. We saw Japan leading the region. Topics index is up nearly 1% of the close. Topics banks outperforming. Hang Seng, um, you know, Alibaba, JD.com, strong for the day. Broad takeaway, watch for potential continued economic uplift out of China as a potential global macro positive force that may very well offset a potential DM downturn or recession, or maybe not offset, but partially at least, but nonetheless, potential regional divergences that may see capital allocated accordingly into, you know, going into the next few months. Okay, so that's it for what happened for today's Asia session. What I want to do today is I want to look back at this absolutely crazy month of March. And when we started the month, we had a few more U.S. regional banks in existence than we ended with, as well as we had a Credit Suisse that started the month in existence and vanished by the end of the month. Um, and, of course, a month in which we saw market behavior and sharp day-to-day -day swings, the likes of which we haven't seen in decades, or if not ever, in rates in particular, rates volatility. Um, but I want to present all this from the Asia perspective, which tells a very different angle and story from what the Western financial media is presenting, which is, frankly, overly focused from only the U.S. or the EU regional, almost blinder-wearing perspectives, and hence missing the big picture. 
And it's understandable because each of those regions, the U.S. and the EU, are in the midst of their own banking crises, right? So you're going to miss the big picture, um, or the media is going to. Um, but this is exactly why Market Depth Podcast has been launched. And what great timing for which to launch it during this historic month of March 2023. Now, I'm not going to like rehash what happened with Silicon Valley Bank, Signature Bank, Credit Suisse, and so on. Not because they're like unimportant or anything. Obviously, each and all of those are very historic and critically important. But because, once again, I'm here to present the missing angle and to fill in like the rest of the largely overlooked picture. Um, but let's just kind of first start off by taking a look cross-asset over the past month just to frame things up. Okay, So let's just first look at equity indices. Now, for a month in which we had like separate banking crises in the U.S. as well as in Europe, and such that private and public and monetary interventions were necessary for both Europe and, and the U.S., um, where a, a major global financial institution got swept up by another major competitor, Credit Suisse and UBS, Swiss authorities like rewriting the rules of like capital structure. Like Given that kind of backdrop, take a look at the equity indices broadly over the month. Like given all of that, like by and large we're flat on the month globally, if not up on the month. So it's kind of you know pretty pretty incredible. Now these are just like the the broad regional indices across like everywhere. We're kind of like we're flat, right? Like we're not seeing anything too crazy. We're we're not seeing double digit gains or losses on any one particular uh, you know index. But that said, let's take a look at some of the sub indices. Um, by the way, this is not as of like the last day's close because it's being filmed, you know, during. But European banks are down thirteen and a half percent. Topix banks down a little bit less, um, eleven and a half percent. But the KBW banks, the U.S. banks, down like twenty five percent. So clearly, the huge underperformer in terms of bank indices. Now, if you look at Tech indices, the Nasdaq 100 outperformed quite well, but there is a huge gap between the U.S. banks and the other major regions, the Japanese banks and the European banks. Now, let's just take a look at currencies really quickly because they've been very tame given all that go that's going on. So... If you look at basically kind of the the U.S. dollar against the the various majors, dollar yen down two percent, euro dollar up almost three percent, um, USDCHF down you know almost three percent, British pound up almost three percent, dollar yuan down one percent, dollar Korean won down a little over one percent. So what we could say is that this is just kind of broad but very slight dollar weakness, if you will. Again, nothing too crazy. Um, The one kind of standout, I guess, would be the Aussie dollar, which is down. This is more or less flat, but uh, Aussie yen, however, is down 2.5%. Aussie yen is a kind of good risk barometer. It's like a high beta sort of pair. Um, But again, 2.5% is not really anything that over a month, especially this month, it's really nothing that crazy, nothing to write home about. Okay, so now that we've gone through equities and currencies, let's take a cross as a few. Okay, so what I was trying to do is I was trying to see if like maybe like the major developed markets and their respective like global banking regions. Okay, so the regions being U.S., Europe, and Japan, right, as the major global banking regions. So those three, I was trying to see if maybe the sentiment on those separate banking regions or respective banking regions. Um, is having a potential sort of effect on currency pairs and in in kind of a similar way, right? Because currencies by nature are relative pair trades against regions, 
right? Like there's no buying of just the euro or selling of just the Aussie dollar or whatever. You have to have a buy and a sell leg against one another. And so maybe the major currency pairs may exhibit some of the regional banking sentiment, you know, relatively speaking. And indeed, that might have been the case. Okay, so the the following three pairs are, 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 these are basically Europe, US, and Japan. So first, I basically took a ratio of European banks index relative to the topics Japan banks index in green. And then I threw just a simple chart of EURJPY. And they match fairly well in terms of directional price action. When there's perceived to be more relative weakness or strength in Japan or in Europe in terms of banking, you'll see stronger EURJPY or you'll see EURJPY go down if it's perceived that Europe has more risk relative to topics banks. All right. Uh, Next is U.S. banks via the KBW Bank Index relative to Japan topics banks uh, ratio. This is in white and just a simple chart of dollar yen. Now, year to date, yeah, I guess they've been like loosely like kind of in line. But in March, they really started to come together, as you could see. And then finally, euro stocks banks relative to U.S. banks and just the euro dollar cross. And you can see here, in the thick of both the U.S. regional crisis and the Credit Suisse and Deutsche and European bank crisis mid-month, you can see that the you know your dollar cross rate actually might have also shown like this relative like levels of anxieties and and whatnot. And so like these are separate and coincidental measures, but it's always kind of good to take a cross asset look and just to see if there's another angle or another asset class that's like either reinforcing price action or developments or the story that's happening, right? Okay, so moving on to commodities very quickly, I just want to touch on two commodities to mention. First is WTI crude. Crude oil this month had a high of 80, dropped down 20% to you know mid-60s, 65 um, mid-month, and then subsequently recovered like half those losses by the end of this month. All right, so like pretty sharp moves, both to the upside and to the downside. It's very volatile. Um, that was actually indeed moved by or aided by uh, listed derivatives and not so much, you know, like futures and options on, on crude and not so much anything fundamental. Okay, the second commodity is gold. Gold went from 1800 to breaking above 2000 for a 10% rally in the time span of about a week and a half or so. Um, I've pointed this out countless times before. Gold traders, watch yen futures. They move together in tandem. Why do they move together in tandem? Look, this is a question that I've been asking myself for years, watching this very tight correlation. To be honest with you, I'm not very satisfied with my only very shallow explanation that I can come up with, but that explanation is as follows. The U.S. dollar is a safe haven from everything, and the safe haven from the dollar is gold and yen. That's it. And so perhaps there are systematic flows programmed off each other and correlating them, or CTA momentum trend strategies that are just simply moving coincidentally. Either way, whatever the reason is, gold traders, if you're looking... If you're going to be looking at like real yields for correlation or whatever, right, and thus getting very frustrated doing so, why not just keep an eye on the yen and yen futures and keep it on your radar, right? I'm not like drawing these charts by hand or making things up out of thin air. This is happening in markets regardless of one's awareness of it or brushing off of it. Okay, before I get into the spotlight as a class of March, which is rates and government bond yields, let me take a, let me make a quick comment on Bitcoin, which is up 20% on the month. So I'm seeing and hearing a lot about like how there's like a lack of liquidity in, in spot Bitcoin and because of active market participants that are absent due to uh, the closing of Signature Bank. That may or may, may not be the case. I'm not here to make or refute that case. I'm frankly not qualified to do that. I'll leave that up to on-chain analytics and people much smarter than I am at Blockworks and you know wherever else. 
What I will say, however, though, is that if you actually look at BITO, which is the Bitcoin US listed Bitcoin futures backed ETF, BITO is actually starting to see some inflows in terms of fund flows and like share creations um, that's gradually been picking up over the month, as well as actual trading volume that's kind of been on an upward ramp as well. Um, alongside the price action and alongside that kind of timing of like signature bank, right? So that might make sense if that's the case, right? Because if people can't get Bitcoin directional exposure in the spot market, they're just turning to this, you know, listed ETF to, to do so. So if that's the case, you need to kind of pay attention to BITO because it, there's two reasons. One is that it would mean that Bitcoin kind of now has like U.S. market trading hours, if you will, right? Obviously, there's trades on the weekends and all that, but you kind of have to watch or, or be cognizant of like U.S. cash open and close um, and sort of activity thereof. Uh, and secondly, BITO is a is like a majority holder of the front two months of Bitcoin futures contracts on CME, such that they, that ETF itself and the rolling of those sort of front two months holdings that they do that can move bitcoin futures and bitcoin futures can therefore move bitcoin spot uh but now let's talk about the insanity in rates and rate volatility now for those who have been following along with market depth this is basically stuff that you already know but i'm just gonna tie it together in a nice little package right um but i want to present what what like really happened with these like record collapse and and surges in in rates in government bond yields. Now, these are just a few superlatives to put things into context. This month of March, on an intraday basis, we've seen the largest swings in the front end of yield curves in Germany and in US. German two-year yields, we've seen the biggest swings, like the most on record um, on an intraday basis, and two-year US treasuries exhibiting the most intraday volatility since Black Monday of 1987. Realized volatility. Why? It's, I guess infinite reasons, right? But mainly, yes, there's a flight to safety. Yes, there's collateral shortage and kind of a scramble for it. Okay, those two things are like banking crisis related, and I'm not saying that those are wrong by any means. Of course, those those things are occurring. There is something that is hugely missing from the the narrative that's being taken over by the banking crises that are happening. So a major, major reason for the volatility that I've been pointing out on market depth every single day is trading illiquidity and technical market structure, like those forces. That combined with wrongly mispositioned levered funds that are blowing up, that are causing further volatility and illiquidity and further force repositioning. As I said, volatility begets volatility, illiquidity begets illiquidity, volatility begets illiquidity, and illiquidity, illiquidity begets volatility. And where and how did this start? In Japan, with the JGB market in response to the March Bank of Japan meeting this month, which was Kuroda's last, and that coincided to the day in timing with the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank. Okay, so let me just explain from my vantage point, and I invite you or I urge you to just kind of clear your mind for a moment of anything related to Silicon Valley Bank or Credit Suisse or anything like that, right? Just for a moment, just take a look from my angle. Pretend that those things never existed, okay? Here's a timeline. At the end of February, Japan CPI came in at a 41-year high of 4.3%. Core CPI came in at 4.2%. 
Okay. And so that makes Japan's CPI above BOJ's, Bank of Japan's 2% inflation goal for now the 10th straight month and has more than doubled those goals of 2%. Uh, so off the back of that, foreigners began short-selling JGBs and March JGB futures in massive size, thinking that at Kuroda's final meeting as BOJ governor on March 10th, that the Bank of Japan will have to widen yield curve control bands yet again due to rising inflation and a policy that no longer applies. And on Friday, March 10th, they were horribly mistaken of what BOJ is changing or not changing policy based on. As BOJ stood pat, and caused a massive short squeeze in 10-year JGBs and JGB futures. Now, when futures expire, JGB futures expire, traders who want to keep their directional position, they can do a roll in which they close the soon-to-expire contract position, and then they reopen the position the next quarterly expiry simultaneously. Okay, So in this case, if they're short JGB March futures and they want to maintain that position, so short rolling March to June contracts, you would have to buy to close March and simultaneously sell to open June. And that spread, right, that buy and sell spread had become prohibitively expensive to do. So many people didn't roll their March short JGB positions. Okay, now fast forward to Crota's press conference which comes out after market close on Friday on March 10th. So for those who didn't exit their short JGB futures, either because it was too expensive to do so, or because they thought that maybe Kuroda's final press conference, he'll say something about ending yield curve control and JGBs would be crushed or whatever it is, uh, he did not do that. And so those who still held their short JGB futures position found themselves on the following Monday market open, which was March JGB futures quarterly expiry day. And so if you're short futures into expiry, you're now on the hook to deliver physical JGBs. However, the cheapest to deliver JGB 10s have been intentionally targeted by the Bank of Japan's enormous JGB buying such that the cheapest to deliver issuances of 10-year JGBs were neither cheap nor available to deliver. And why? Because the Bank of Japan owned 100% of outstanding supply for many of these particular issuances that futures traders needed in which to deliver. And when BOJ owns all of an issue, they lend them out and they charge interest to do so. And that lending rate was quadrupled from 25 basis points to 1% during that period. So for those scrambling to deliver JGBs, they had to pay up for non-existent supply immediately over the next few days. And so what happened that week in rates markets? We saw two-year U.S. Treasury yields drop the most on an intraday basis since Black Monday in 1987. We saw two-year German boons up and down swings, the largest intraday moves on record. And as crazy as those both were, they actually don't compare to the rate of change velocity of the absolute yield plummeting that we saw in 10-year JGBs. Yields on JGB 10s went from above 50 basis points yield curve control cap to immediately below 20 basis points, which is far below the previous 25 basis points yield curve control cap. And some JGB issuances, like 10-year JGB issue number 369, for example, was yielding negative in negative territory. So in three days, the generic JGB yield was cut by more than half 
and in some cases wiped out the entire positive nominal yield. So you can't really compare like how much of a you know nominal yield changed. Like you could say like yes, that was a crazy move, a sixty or eighty base point move down in the two year on U.S. Treasuries versus only thirty basis points for a ten year JGB. There's much more of you know yield that moved or that was like wiped out. Yeah, I suppose. But if you look at it from a relative basis, you're talking about, like I said, 10-year JDB yield going from 50 basis points to below 25 is getting cut by more than half. So that would be, have to be the equivalent of a two-year treasury yield going from 4% to down to 2%. That didn't happen to that magnitude. That's why I'm saying that the, the magnitude of the move in 10-year yields for JGBs was like the what takes the cake for the biggest, most violent swings uh, to the downside in, in terms of fields across DM markets and DM rates. So the reason this is happening is because there's no actual market supply to, to transact due to years of central banks' direct intervention that destroyed market functioning and trading liquidity such that even a small-sized notional amount of buying can seriously move yields. Um, these are supposed to be, you know, government bond markets are supposed to be the most liquid and available securities on the planet, but which now have a liquidity profile like some microcap stock. This that's what happens when non-economic actors with unlimited printing presses like enter the government bond markets as the largest whales. You have actual activity and liquidity just sap up and disappear. You have market makers disappear, bid ask spreads just blast wide open, and there just isn't any normal functioning anymore. That's why you see the biggest swings and the most volatility occur in order of most intrusive central banks to least, right? So BOJ and JGBs being the worst trading conditions, followed by the European sovereigns as the ECB began their balance sheet tapering in this month of March, and then followed by the U.S. Treasury market. Now let's look at the actual data that subsequently came out. So that week ending March 17th that I was just talking about, um, that started with that, you know, JGB futures expiry Monday. But that week ending March 17th, foreign investors bought the most JGBs on record that week. Okay. Again, for the week ending March 17th, foreign investors bought the most JGBs on record. And then that very same week ending March 17th, Japanese investors bought the most foreign bonds on record, only with the exception of March 2020. But if you exclude March 2020, Japanese investors bought the most foreign bonds also on record. Now, when I say foreigners bought the most JGBs on record, they weren't buying JGBs to open a long JGB position. They were scrambling to short cover. They were rushing to exit trades, not rushing to open. Okay, But for Japanese investors... They suddenly see domestic yields just vanish. And so the world's duration anchor, the Japanese fixed income investor and the trillions that they have, um, you know, the, the OPEC of fixed income, as, as they say, they deploy trillions overseas and crush yields in Europe and in the US. And that's what happened. Okay, you saw very crowded, leveraged short US Treasury front end trades held by macro hedge funds suddenly find the businesses at existential risk. Okay, and then I outlined this in two previous episodes, but over that week, we saw Bluecrest Capital, who was up 150% last year, 
who made a lot of money on the short JGB trade in December, are down something like 10% on the year. Caxton, which is another huge macro fund, is down about 3% on the year. This is according to uh, Financial Times. Then I talk about Rokos and Chris Rokos, 15 billion fund. He had he was down like uh, 13% uh, this month alone. And so he had to write a letter to his investors that weekend saying like, we have, you know, cut our positions. We've taken like big losses. Again, this these are people that are that were up significantly last year. Um, Said Haydar's uh, Jupiter Fund had his worst performance uh, on record. And this fund has been trading macro very successfully since 1997. Throughout Asia financial crisis, throughout dot com, you know, bubble burst, throughout nine eleven, throughout two thousand eight, you know, European debt crisis, COVID, all of that, and March twenty twenty three is what they couldn't handle, and they had their worst performance um, on record it's due to enormous swings in rate volatility that was, was totally unexpected. It doesn't fit risk models and things that they anticipated for because they anticipated or they were relying on government bond markets to be liquid, and they certainly were not. Um, and they were exhibiting massive erratic swings. Um, the Goldman Trading Desk, like the, the the rates trading desk, right? They lost like 200 million as market makers, apparently. Graticule Asia shut down also amongst that list. Completely closed up for business because of this month. So I go over all this in an episode called uh, Volatility and Rates Claims More Victims. So see that for just a more in-depth kind of explanation on this. But just... Generally speaking, what I talk about is like on an institutional trading desk, right? The role of an execution trader is to not move markets when you're executing an order. That's what your job is, right? So if you're when like literally the house is on fire, it's no time for like not moving markets and kind of stealthily trying to execute orders. It's about price indiscriminate trading execution at any cost. It's about survival. And that kind of behavior, trading execution behavior is happening in already thin and illiquid markets as they are. They're structurally impaired to function due to central banks' enormous presence um, in government bond markets who are now pulling away and leaving their giant footprints that only really show themselves in real time. Um, And at times when things like Liquid, available, and easily transacted you know, markets and securities that are relied upon in mass for those characteristics, when those characteristics no longer exist to, or to the extent that they once did or are thought to be, that's when people just get completely thrown off and you see volatility and move index like spike like crazy, like up to you know 2008 or COVID levels. Okay, so again, so that stems from really like the BOJ, the Bank of Japan meeting from that Friday on uh, March 10th, and then the subsequent uh, futures and expiry, right? Um, it, it all just comes back to that. It's not just Silicon Valley Bank, um, if, if you look at it from the Asia perspective. As far as the global bank shares plummeting, right? Like, namely Japan mega banks, that is, they have nothing to do with US regionals, they have no exposure. Um, and for that matter, they don't really have that much to do with Credit Suisse either because that was like miraculously solved with like lightning speed. Um, but again, that's just another unwinding of a long position based on expectations of higher yields in Japan that just never came through, right? Because uh, yield curve control just didn't continue to, to go up. It's rapid profit taking. So in other words, if you never heard of like Silicon Valley Bank or even Credit Suisse, right? And you just watched like rates trading mechanics and from the you know angle of the Bank of Japan meeting that was just completely papered over and March JGB futures expiry, 
and you just were kind of like cognizant of all those things that I've been, you know, talking about on this channel, like all this would make sense, right? Because it doesn't make sense for Japan banks to get hit like this alongside uh, Eurostox banks or for U.S. mega banks like the J.P. Morgans to be to be hit down so hard. They're actually net winners of something like, you know, a regional banking crisis, right? But the reason those stocks are getting hit is because they're they're getting hit because yields are collapsing. But where did that yield collapsing at such velocity in such a violent manner, like, how did that begin? It began out of Japan. Like, it's just really that simple. But you're just not going to, you're never going to hear about, like, that story about the mad scramble for cheapest to deliver JGBs. Like, that's not a sexy story in, like, the broader financial media. Thankfully, as you can see, I'm far from sexy myself, and so it is my role to bring the unsexy back, right? But, like, seriously, you're not going to hear about it because even if they kind of realize that this is what's happening, you can't cover that story if you're, like, based in the U.S. or you're based in Europe. You have a fire in your backyard of an actual banking crisis happening. But, like, another example is, like, what I said from this Monday, from this week where 10-year JGBs saw no trades, right? And no trades on 10-year JGBs is not, like, abnormal. That happens... The last time this happened was a month ago, right? But the fact that there were no trades, that told me, or that was a potential signal to me that this kind of, you know, era of insane rates of volatility might be over for now. Because the only time that... JB, JGBs are actually traded and like are actually you know, actively trading is when they're at their yield curve control band. Right now, JGB yields are far from the yield curve control band and therefore not trading. So unless there's crazy rate volatility happening, you're not going to see um, activity in JGB 10s. And so that told me, it was kind of a clue to me that this might be the kind of end of rate volatility. And since then, for now, it seems that that was indeed the case. So that might have been a, a good signal, right? But ultimately, like, why does this all matter? Besides all the reasons I just gave you why it matters, right? It really matters because of this notion that currently the markets and the Fed, what they're guiding for, are just so completely divergent, right? And markets are always correct in their pricing and all that, right? That might not be the case anymore or as much as it used to be, right, to rely on market uh, market signaling. What you're seeing in markets might just be hedge funds blowing up and illiquid markets, and then therefore more hedge funds blowing up and, and levered players like rushing for exits and getting out at a price indiscriminate, you know, trading execution manner and all of that happening. And things like JGB markets that are exhibiting massive, massive swings in yields and an inability to short cover because a supply doesn't exist and all that kind of stuff. This could be what's pushing yields, you know, so far, so fast. And not necessarily the markets opening new long positions in front end rates or like the market's pricing of a steepening yield curve or pricing of recession or like not believing the Fed or whatever it may be, right? Um, just another example of time I had. Sulfur futures. Sulfur futures are getting slowly sort of trying to get replaced uh, as euro dollar futures, which were kind of the, the largest, most liquid instrument um, for front end, you know, short term interest rates. Sulfur futures are now kind of replacing those. And what we saw was in the midst of that, you know, that insane week, we saw trading halt on sulfur futures. 
trading halts like don't ever really ex- like happen to euro dollar futures. So anybody who's a short term range trader who suddenly saw like their market you know like uh, halt. That's not something that they're ever really used to. And so they jumped over into what's the next closest, most liquid sort of futures market. They're going to jump to two-year U.S. Treasury futures, right? So again, these are all just trading mechanics and things that are happening and not necessarily like markets being perfectly priced as expressions of what their views are of the Fed and not believing them or of recessions or, or of inflation or whatever it may be. So I suspect that, like I said in my previous episodes, you might get to a point where soon where the rates volatility and kind of the positioning has been cleansed out. And you might actually start seeing a reconvergence towards like the Fed, like markets towards the Fed um, and their guidance. Then they might not be as desperately wide as it seems right now. OK, so that's why, you know, that's why it matters. You need to know why prices are um, where they are and why how they got to where they are. And it's not always just new long positions that are being done. It could just be exiting, scrambling out of positions that originally agreed with the Fed anyway. The very crowded short two-year U.S. Treasury positioning, that was in agreement with the Fed. Short-term rates are going to go higher because the Fed is going to lift rates higher. That was the original positioning, but if they're being forced out of it, they have to buy to cover, and they're going to slam to your U.S. Treasury yields down. But again, that's not new longs expressing a position that is exiting, forced exiting, arm twisting out of a position. So let's not you know read into that as markets are saying this, Fed is saying that. Markets are saying that the markets are kind of broken right now. That's what I get out of it. Okay, so what's next? Well, that's for Monday's episode of Market Depth, but what's next is the month of April, or Bank of Japan Month, okay? As Governor Kuroda officially leaves, um, I think it's on like the 10th or something like that, or the 9th of April, and he hands the keys off to brand new rookie Governor Ueda, who will hold his first Bank of Japan meeting at the end of the month of April. And there's going to be a CPI, Japan CPI print before that. And the speculation, the prepositioning, and the market turmoil, turmoil that's going to erupt either way, no matter what the BOJ does or doesn't do, due to a badly damaged, distorted, and dysfunctional market, will once again impact global DM rates and global markets. Okay, So, hope you're ready for April. We'll get more to that on Monday. Um, but in the meantime, I urge you to watch this very first special episode of Market Depth that I put out where I cover what Bank of Japan Kuroda has done over the past decade so that we can understand as best as possible um, what might be ahead um, in the immediate term. Okay, so that's it for me. Thanks for watching yet another episode of Market Depth. I certainly do appreciate you allowing me to give an alternative view. I hope that it was helpful. If you like this and you like the content, make sure that you like and subscribe and make sure you have your notifications turned on. Follow me on Twitter at Across the Spread as well because I do make a lot of market commentary that doesn't make it onto these videos as well. I hope you had a wonderful month of March and let's see what uh, April brings us. Uh, But we'll see you next time. Thanks.